I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in our series, The Death of Christian Art. So how do we do it? How do art enthusiasts practice wisdom and discretion? And how do art skeptics practice art appreciation? Psalm 139, verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. These words are inspired by God. Thank you, guys. Go ahead and take a seat. These words are inspired by God, which can, in this particular context, feel kind of weird to say, because at Van City, we wholeheartedly believe and we teach that the Bible, all of the Bible, really, is inspired by God, poured out by God's Spirit, breathed out by God's Spirit, and is thus authoritative for all disciples of Jesus. And yet, here's a poem, most of it really beautiful in its vulnerability before God and about A quarter of it is kind of ugly, and it's suddenly going on about hating people and wanting them dead, which we also believe at Van City is sinful, by the way. So does this poem in God's inspired, authoritative scriptures suggest that everything in Psalm 139 describes good thoughts and feelings? How is a poem authoritative? Do we read ancient Hebrew poetry the same way we read, say, the teachings of Jesus? Or do poems, some art, that is, teach us 
in a different way. We are in a series called The Death of Christian Art. Now, the plan was to wrap things up tonight, but the response has been kind of interesting so far. Some people are delighted. That's actually an email subject I got this week. It said, delighted with art series, which is wonderful. I rarely get that kind of promise in the subject line, let me tell you. Um, so it was so encouraging. I just rushed to click on that thing. And then as I was doing it, I thought, oh man, what if the first word of the email is not, you know, because um, it was wonderful. It was wonderful encouragement. Um, I've had conversations like that. Other folks um, have had uh, hesitations or pushback or outright disagreement, which is also wonderful. That's part of the process of learning and working things out together as a family and nothing new to our church or, or really most of the series that we've done over our almost eight years as a church together. But whether you're delighted or hesitant, lots of people have had questions. So last week, we set up a place to submit those questions for a time of Q&A. Um, but we underestimated the amount of questions that would come through. Last I checked this morning, there were more than 40. Um, and there's some very, very good thoughtful stuff. Uh, and quite frankly, too many good ones to split with tonight's sermon. So the staff decided this week to extend the series by one week. And next Sunday, we'll do just uh, a crazy time of Q&A here in the gathering. Um, and then I saw a note on my teaching this afternoon that someone told me there's like a sporting event going on at the same time. <laughs> That's fine. I don't care. Either come hang out with us or don't be a Christian. It's up to you. <laughs> Direct your angry emails to Cam about, about the um, Super Bowl joke. It's just a joke. Anyway, so even, even though we're going to dedicate a lot of time and space to those questions, we can't possibly get to them all, but there's still time to submit questions if you have them or kind of upvote the questions that you think kind of consolidate some of your thoughts that have already been asked. Um, and as dorky as this sounds, I do have to just put it out there that I do answer all the questions I've seen so far at length in this book that I've written. We sell it at cost. No one profits. I don't profit. The church doesn't profit. It's just there as a resource. If you want to dig deeper, it's there for you after the gathering of the book table. Um, tonight, I want to spend the evening talking about practice. So let's start with this guy. Christopher Nolan is probably, oh wow, already some acclaim for this guy. Probably, uh, he's honestly probably one of two remaining marquee directors, Quentin Tarantino being the other one. Uh, meaning, lots and lots of people will go see this guy's movies just because he directed them. We don't really have directors like that anymore. In the 70s and 80s, that was a big thing and it kind of died out. Um, you may or may not like his movies personally, but they do big business at the box office and with the exception of his Batman trilogy, none of his movies enjoy the boost of some like recognizable IP that would have made money regardless of who was directing it. And Nolan, again, like him or not, is also, along with Tarantino, our other marquee director that's left, he's probably one of the two remaining directors who fashions big, spectacle-driven entertainment with an auteur vision and then sells tickets in the process. We have lots of people with an auteur vision still making movies, Martin Scorsese, for example, um, but he's always had more flops than hits at the box office. Spielberg's last two films, though critically acclaimed, bombed big time. Um, Denis Villeneuve, uh, his Blade Runner 2049, lost the studio $80 million. I don't know if you are counting, that's a lot of money, even for a movie studio. And his adaptation of Dune did manage to profit, but whereas Dune earned, I think, 400 million bucks at the box office, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer earned a billion this year. That's right, a historical drama 
earning a billion dollars at the box office. Who would have thought? So we do have some big budget auteur directors, but only a couple left whose movies lots and lots of people want to see just because of the director. So, like any great artist, Nolan can be divisive. He's not one of my favorites, personally. He's made, to my estimation, well, not to everyone's estimation, he's made 12 movies. To my estimation, nine of them range from either good to great, and three of them range from not so great to outright terrible. But his ability as a director is probably without question, and not just because he sells movie tickets. Nolan has become one of the most, if not the most, influential mainstream auteur directors of his era. His films create widespread cultural conversation about the subjectivity of the human experience, or about morality, or about the nature of time, or about the cost of dedication to a craft or to a cause. Big picture stuff about the human experience and big spectacle-driven blockbuster entertainment. In a 2018 interview with the Los Angeles Times, Nolan revealed that one of his, the most formative experiences of his life, an experience or an event that he believes unlocked his creative potential and that continues to reverberate into his adulthood, was seeing Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now get this, when he was seven years old, now, how many of you guys in the room have seen 2001 A Space Odyssey? Uh, it's not a cool contest, I'm just genuinely curious. So, uh, not unlike some of Stanley Kubrick's other movies, 2001, if you don't know, it kind of polarized critics upon its release April of 1968, but then it has gone on to become commonly cited by critics and film lovers and filmmakers as one of the greatest, most influential films of all time. I didn't see this thing until I was 27 years old, and, uh, and just because I was checking off some things on my list that I had not seen. And I enjoyed it, but I gotta say, it's a baffling movie. So when I read Christopher Nolan talk about seeing it as a seven-year-old, I was like, wow, man, times have changed. I guess I'm just not, I'm not with it at 27. But <laughs> it was what he said next that really struck me. And this is why I brought this whole thing up in the first place. He said that he had elected to show 2001 A Space Odyssey to his kids when they were four years old. And he went on to explain it this way. I think that they're able to absorb it on the most important level at a young age. That's what happened to me. I saw it when I was seven years old, and that's the level I think it works the best. Pure cinematic spectacle. I was extremely baffled by it, but excited by it. When people talk about the age of people watching a film, part of what they're asking is, how does a seven-year-old parse the content? And if you look at 2001 and you think about it, you can't parse it anyway as an adult. <laughs> the experience is the thing. Now again, if you've seen this movie, you know it's not that the movie, it's not like graphic, it's not upsetting. Um, it's actually rated G by the MPA, uh, though admittedly at a time when they were less persnickety. Um, but it's that the movie is dense, it's long and slow, and it defies interpretation. That's why it's so surprising that he would show it to his four-year-olds. What the heck is happening in the third act of this movie? But what can you say? The guy said it changed his life. I don't have any reason to doubt Christopher Nolan saying 2001 changed his life. And that's when it hit me. When I read that article, my oldest son Beck was about four years old. Now, like many kids of his generation, Abby and I, you know, we tried to limit screen time, but when he did watch stuff, it was like kiddie cartoons and movies. And I tried to think back to a movie that really affected me when I was four years old. I was like, man, uh, uh, where are we at in this whole thing? Let's compare experiences. And I realized 
going as back as I, far as I could, age four, I can remember it vividly, the movie that formed me at that age and first was like, whoa, a movie was Ghostbusters. And, oh, wow, Ghostbusters, yeah. I remember where I was at in my living room at the time as we watched it as a family. My brother Patrick and I were immediately propelled into full, like, 80s Ghostbuster mania. The toys and school supplies and Saturday morning cartoon. My most beloved stuffed animal was the stuffed Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. That's right. Yeah, that's me and him. Uh, and I had a Ghostbusters-themed birthday party, you know. And if you, if you read the cake, it says, Ghostbusters say, <laughs> happy birthday, Joshua. Did they really? Anyway... So something about, I don't know, something about that strange and very 80s overlap of like comedy and cartoonish monsters and proton packs that it informed my aesthetic as a, as, a, as a young kid and as an adult. And I realized, oh my gosh, my kid isn't ready to watch Ghostbusters. What have I done? I failed as a parent, not just because he might be scared, but because modern children's entertainment often assumes that kids can only be entertained by fast-paced, candy-colored, googly-eyed animals that sing little songs or learn an alphabet lesson at the end. So I made a list right then and there after I read that article with Christopher Nolan. I made a list of all the movies I remember having an impact, a formative impact on me as a kid. Uh, it ended up being 40. 40 movies. I wrote down what age I was for each movie. I started to put them in a kind of order, beginning with the movies that might challenge what he's accustomed to, the very least, all the way up to like 2001 A Space Odyssey level. Um, millennial parents, I don't know if you know this about us, we're a sensitive bunch. Um, apparently, we popularized the whole helicopter parenting thing. And uh, even though I'm kind of in this ambiguous overlap of Gen X and the millennial generation, helicopter parenting is the world of my peers. We are, I've deduced, scared to show our kids anything that could possibly upset any of them in any way. But if you had a Gen X or a Gen X adjacent childhood, unless your parents were restrictive in their conservatism to the extreme, then maybe you remember seeing lots of movies that freaked you out, but you lived, and you even went on to love a lot of them. Um, I saw Gremlins when I was six, uh, and I was terrified and obsessed. I saw Jaws that same year, uh, you know, Beetlejuice, Indiana Jones, The Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, The NeverEnding Story, Monster Squad. The 80s were a wild time. I don't know if you remember these movies that they made for families and children at the time. A wild time. So we started a movie night, four years old. Uh, a movie discipleship training is what I called it. And I told him, this is what we're doing. We're going to watch these movies. Some of them you're not going to maybe like right away, but you're going to learn something in the process. And we started with what I thought was the easiest vehicle in, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Um, that's right. He got scared of that bee. I don't know if you remember this bee. <laughs> and the funny thing is, he wasn't scared of the peril. He was scared of the bee's eyes. I don't know why. He's like, I'm so scared of its eyes. It's like, oh, okay. Anyway, he was scared for a minute. And then he was just fine. And we watched the rest of the movie. We've watched it lots of times since then. If you're wondering, Honey, I Shot the Kids is still a great movie. Very entertaining. And then we moved on down the list. We watched movies like Gremlins, and we watched E.T. and Willow and the Star Wars movies, Planet of the Apes, dozens of Japanese Godzilla movies, and of course, when he was five, finally, Jurassic Park. Now, some might call this indoctrination. <laughs> He's my kid. So, so, yeah. But more than that, it was really because, yeah, it's fun to share your interest with your kid, but I want my kids to appreciate 
art and to unlock their imaginations in any of the ways that I remember my imagination being unlocked. I want them, I want them to get a little scared and realize that they're fine. The bee is just a prop. The gremlins are just puppets. And I want them to cry at the end of E.T. And I want them to ask me questions about life and death and good and evil after we watch a movie. And of course, it's not just movies. There are books. There's Narnia and Harry Potter. Beck is currently reading this beautiful graphic, graphic novel adaptation of Watership Down. And we're having conversations about what's going on with these bunnies. Um, and music. David Bowie for Isla, whose middle name is Bowie. Wild stuff, palatable stuff, middle of the road stuff. Now, of course, some of these movies and books and songs, they land and they're curious and interested. Some don't, and that's just fine. Sometimes they love what I want them to love, and sometimes they love what I'd prefer them to hate. But what can you do with that? There's two of us as parents, and, you know, Abby's going to play Taylor Swift for Isla, so too late. You know? Now, it's not just about teaching them to like what I like, though that is a lot of fun. It's about giving them opportunities to unlock and expand their imagination and even pushing them a bit to understand better how art can teach us to confront difficult things like fear or sadness or even death, and I want them to learn to process all of those things with Jesus and to understand that art gives us a place to express our sadness and fear and frustrations and anxieties and to not think of art and entertainment as something secular, something distinct from their discipleship to Jesus, but as part of it, as a sacred part of their discipleship to Jesus. And I realize that our particular Christian culture is not exactly organized in such a way to teach us that, so that's a lesson many of us are still learning. When I first started talking about all this, about how so many Christians um, don't know what to do with art, especially upsetting art, I got letters and comments um, from Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians saying, dude, what the heck are you talking about? Because we have icons and liturgies and rituals, and we have stained glass windows in our churches depicting the beheading of saints. And I said, well, that's fine. We have wood on the walls of our... We're, we're American Protestants. We don't have that kind of stuff. So how do we learn from the scriptures and church history, and how do we put all of these things into practice responsibly as disciples of Jesus, following him obediently as a family? Now, first, very short recap. I've argued throughout the series and across, you know, some 200 plus pages of a book that one, art matters to God. He made it up. And all throughout the story of the Bible, God creates art, he commissions art, he commands art, and he insists on art even when it isn't practical or even effective in the traditional sense. And the kind of art that God creates and commissions and commands is often beautiful and uplifting and redemptive and straightforward. Anyone can understand it, like Psalm 23 or the parable of the prodigal son or the vision of the new heaven and the new earth. But the kind of art that God creates and commissions and commands can also be, as we've seen from the scriptures, very R-rated or offensive or obscene or abstract and not easy to understand, like psalms about violence and doubt and despair or parables about murder and mutilation or visions of corpses or performance art with burning excrement or an entire collection of graphic sex poems right smack dab in the middle of the Hebrew scriptures. In the Bible... Art can serve a utilitarian purpose, of course. It can be a teaching tool, it can be a means to an end, and in the Bible, art can be a purpose unto itself, not really that practical at all. Art for art's sake. 
The Bible itself is a work of art. Not a single letter is wasted. Every single word is imbued with divine intention from worship songs to graphic retellings of horrific human evil to promises of hope to poems overflowing with darkness and despair. All of it, whether it's ancient history or descriptions of outfits and wood carvings or poems and parables, all of it exists within the great work of literary majesty, the work of art that is the Bible itself. And so, throughout church history, art has mattered to Christians. Art that inspires with hope and beauty, and art that invites us to consider evil and reflect on our own mortality and confront darkness and death. If you visit churches and chapels and cathedrals around the world, you might find paintings of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, or sculptures of his baptism, or when the Holy Spirit descended on him, or you might find him depicted in agony, impaled on an instrument designed for torture and execution. Or you might find stained glass windows of saints uh, before their execution. Or you might find the skulls of dead Christians or chandeliers made from human bones. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Christians around the world have recognized a place for both kinds of art and the overlap in between, art that braids the two things together. So, if art matters to God, and if throughout the Bible God communicates and comes near to us in art, and if art, God's art really, encompasses both the beautiful and the profane, then art should matter to us as Christians. We should be willing to meet God in art, art that's beautiful and uplifting, and art that invites us to consider the darkness. But as I've said several times throughout the series, Disciples of Jesus are not simply free to consume and enjoy anything they want. We are beholden to a master, and we are broken, which means we are not good as the ultimate arbiters of what's best for us and other people. So the way we engage art, then, must be beholden to several things in particular. First, discernment. And by that I mean general wisdom of self-awareness. If you know already that you are in the throes of recovering from a debilitating addiction to pornography, then sitting down for like a TV miniseries known for graphic depictions of sexuality is not wise. Or forget about objectionable content for a minute and ask yourself more base questions. Why do I seek out art and entertainment? And at what level? Is it to numb myself or to avoid something in my life? Or am I stewarding my time with wisdom and concern for others? How does my experience of art enrich my relationship with Jesus? How will it move me closer to him rather than away from him? So we learn to exercise discernment and actually think about these things. But again, we're not always so good at that. So we don't stop there. That's just the first basic step. The second is that we invite the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, by that, I don't mean, hey, if you don't get zapped with a bad feeling, then you're good. No, there's another reason that we actually began the evening with Psalm 139. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious, anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We sit before the Spirit of God in vulnerability, and we talk to Him about what we're processing through art. On Wednesday night of this week, Abby and I watched a movie together. Um, it's J.A. Bayona's new film, uh, The Society of the Snow. 
it's called, an Oscar contender, so we're checking those off the list. And I was stirred in the night by some unrelated thing. One of the kids made a sound or something like that. But then my mind started spinning over this movie, over some particularly disturbing scenes in it. And I started processing them with God, not in a, oh, forgive me, Lord, I sinned because I saw a movie with disturbing content kind of way. That could be an appropriate response, but it wasn't this time. Um, I was processing just what it made me think about the world and pain and suffering and and God's presence and the problem of evil and how it made me feel about those things and, and what, it was, uh, what I was wrestling with as a result. Now, God obviously knows what you watch and read and see. He's with you all the time. It's just a matter of acknowledging that and what it's doing to you, for better or for worse, in his presence and on a regular basis, and then obeying when and if he corrects you. That's the way of spiritual formation in general. We're all being formed all the time, one way or another, by the world around us and culture and life itself. So the practices of Jesus, including art appreciation, is a means by which we choose to form ourselves into the image of Jesus rather than into the image of our culture or time or place or whatever it might be. And that requires wisdom and practice, other steps in the process, because sometimes art disturbs because it's meant to disturb, and that isn't necessarily the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin. It's the art doing what the art is supposed to do, and God can use that. So, how do you know? You ask. You sit before God and ask, does this provoke me to sin? Does this agitate my flesh or my brokenness? Does this provoke me in such a way as to bend my mind away from the truth? Now, a lot of us, we go right to obvious examples like graphic violence or sexuality or even language or horror or blasphemy, but it's not exactly that simple. Take me, for example, I'm a pacifist, very strong conviction. No depiction of violence I have ever observed in art has ever tempted me, even for a moment, to compromise my conviction as a pacifist. I don't use swear words at all. I never have. I really don't believe it's permissible for disciples of Jesus to cuss. No amount of F-bombs in any movie or book have ever made me even accidentally say one myself. I'm not interested. It doesn't usually work that way, that you see evil or sin in a movie and you think, oh, it's kind of cool. I think I want to do... In fact, I would argue... And, and not just me, with neuroscience and sociology, you're way more likely to be influenced in that particular way by things like social media or the news than you are a movie or a song. Instead, the influence of art is often more subtle and that makes it more complicated. If you're in a season, for example, when you've been despairing and a very bleak work of art comes along that speaks to your taste and preference and aesthetics, it could further tip the scales to hopelessness. Or if you are, like I mentioned earlier, in the throes of sexual addiction, and then it probably won't take something that graphic to provoke you. Honestly, something really subtle could do it. So it takes knowing yourself, exercising discernment, and asking God's spirit. But even then, we're not always so great at listening, and we're certainly not always so great at obedience. So we also need the accountability of community. Now this one is really tricky, so please stay with me on this. Community accountability does not mean that if another Christian says, hey, you shouldn't watch that TV show, well, that means, oh, checkmate, turn it off, they said so. Not necessarily, anyway. What it means is that when you share your life and discipleship with other Christians in intimate community, usually a small number of Christians, because you can't, I, guess, I think, uh, 
sociologists or psychologists argue you can't share really intimate life community with more than seven people at a time or something like that. So a small number of people in your intimate community with relational equity and compassion and humility, when you share that kind of relational equity, they are going to know about your sin and your brokenness, and they should. That's an important part of your discipleship to Jesus. And if they know about your sin and brokenness, and if they know how you spend your time, then they might, from time to time, check in and speak into the things that you do. For example, my community knows um, that when I'm not doing well, I struggle against a very bleak, very pessimistic view of the world and myself and other people, and it's not good, sinful even. And they also know that I've often enjoyed certain works of art that express a bleak worldview. So if I were just telling them about enjoying such a thing when they knew that last week in community I'd been saying how dark I'd been feeling, well, that they would be well within their rights to ask, is this wise? Is this a good decision for you right now? Because we know you and we know what you just said. And I have been a part of that process. I've been called out and I've called other people out. It's not always fun, but it's necessary. But I've also been called out by other people with whom I have no relational equity, who demonstrates zero interest whatsoever in even understanding why one might appreciate a given work of art. They deem it too offensive, and so they enforce its censorship over other people. If they don't see how it can possibly be sinlessly enjoyed, then it must not be possible, and you're going to hear about it. And the problem with that, aside from the obvious, is that even if they're right, that's not a great way to go about it. What about demonstrating the humility to ask, can you help me understand this and why it means something to you? And admitting, it's hard for me to understand how you can enjoy that. So can we talk about it? What am I missing? Is this wise? Based on what I know about you and your season of life and the stage of your discipleship, talk to me. And then, if appropriate, yes, graciously pushing back if doing so is the right thing to do whilst maintaining an open mind and the willingness to continue to listen. Discernment, conviction from the Spirit, accountability and community. This is how we begin to practice the spiritual discipline of art appreciation responsibly. But then where will it take us? So before we end, I want to once again offer a piece for consideration. One infamous piece, and I talk about this in the book at the very beginning, is a 1987 work by an artist named uh, Andre Serrano. So to make this work of art, he submerged a small plastic crucifix in a jar of his urine, and he took a picture. The picture would become the subject of international outrage for decades. It's been banned, it's been boycotted, displays have been stormed and destroyed, it's been condemned by influential religious and political figures, and yet, plot twist, the artist, Andre Serrano, says he is a Christian. Uh, a devoted follower of Christ is how he puts it. In 1997, during an interview with journalist Bill Moyers, Catholic nun and art enthusiast, Sister Wendy Beckett, was asked if she believed the piece was blasphemous. And this is what she had to say. You not offended when you looked at Andre Serrano's Piss Christ. Did you find that denigrating of, of the central figure of your faith? Well, actually, no, because I thought he was saying, in a rather simplistic, uh, magazine-y type of way, that this is what we are doing to Christ. We're not treating him with reverence. His great sacrifice is not used. We live very vulgar lives. 
we put Christ in, in a bottle of, of urine. In practice, it was a very uh, uh, admonitory work. Not a great work, because one wouldn't want to go on looking at it once one had to one's distress seen it once. But I think to call it blasphemous is really rather begging the question. It could be, it could not be. It's what you make of it. And I could make something that made me feel a, a deep desire to, to reverence the death of Christ more by this suggestion that this is what in practice the world is doing. So how can this be? How can a self-described Christian artist create something that so offends so many Christians? Was he in sin? Is it sinful to look at the work itself? Is it even worse to admire anything about it? Not just the statement, but the composition or the craftsmanship. How could this Catholic nun, Sister Wendy Beckett, look at this same piece that made everyone else so upset and find in it something that compelled her to worship? To call it blasphemous, she just said, is really rather begging the question. It could be. It could not be. It's what you make of it. And I could make something that made me feel a deep desire to reverence the death of Christ more. So here's the conundrum. I would argue, based on the scriptures, and based on art itself, that to establish black and white parameters around what is and isn't permissible in art inevitably becomes a violation of God's design for art. But, please listen, that does not mean anything goes. It doesn't. What it does mean is that it's possible that Andre Serrano's divisive piece really offended some people, legitimately offended them, and it really compelled other people to worship. If those who were offended insisted that to behold this work of art was inappropriate for all Christians at all times, then Sister Wendy would not have felt that deep desire to reverence the death of Christ through that work. If well-meaning Christians in my parents' life, for example, would have said to them, listen, do not give your young, impressionable son a book by Sylvia Plath. What are you doing? Or, or to my dad, you, you can't play a queen record for your little boys. I don't know that I would have become a writer or a musician or quite frankly a pastor. I don't know if I would have used any of those things to tell people what I think is true of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And really, I know it's not that big. You can throw a rock and hit someone who does everything I do much better. But somehow, in, this, in his incredible sense of humor, God has taken even the weird stuff that I've made and used it. And people have said, hey, I want to do stuff for the kingdom too. This provoked something in me, like Christopher Nolan in 2001 or this offensive piece in Sister Wendy Beckett. But there have also been people who have been less approving, who have wanted this or that book or song uh, censored or scrubbed. And yeah, God is God. He's not going to be toppled if something that I made that only a tiny handful of people would have cared about anyways gets thwarted. He's going to do the stuff he wants to do. But across my 40 years and everything that I've made and I've seen and, and that for every work of art that has formed me in my discipleship to Jesus, whether it was created by a devout Christian or not, there's been someone who would rather it not exist or who would protect Christians from its dangerous reach. And what I want so badly for Christians and non-Christians alike to understand is this, an artistic depiction of a thing is not necessarily an artist's endorsement or celebration of a thing. 
Uh, divisive comedian Ricky Gervais argued that a joke about a bad thing isn't as bad as the bad thing. It's not even necessarily condoning the bad thing. It could be anti the bad thing. It depends on the actual joke. Depicting something in a work of art can be done in order to address the thing honestly, like a tragedy that depicts child abuse, in order to tell an honest story about a very real evil, or, or even the historical accounts of terrible evil in the scriptures. Depicting something in a work of art can be done in order to, to condemn it, like a story about violent white supremacists intended to showcase the evils of racism, a film about the horrors of war. Depicting something in a work of art can be done in order to say something else entirely, altogether. C.S. Lewis depicts sword fights and sorcery in his beloved Narnia books as a genre vehicle to tell fantasy stories about the saving love of Jesus. Depicting magic in his books does not mean that C.S. Lewis is a Wiccan or an occultist. Steven Spielberg, though he directed Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List, did not uh, do either to celebrate warfare and certainly not to endorse the Holocaust. But if it is inherently wrong to depict dark, horrific, or obscene, or even offensive things in art, it's essentially wrong to broach those subjects in art at all. And as we've seen, this would make many of the Bible's poems and parables and visuals bad or wrong, but they're not. No, depicting all kinds of things in art is essential in honestly grappling with the human condition through art. But, again, please listen, that does not mean that all of us will receive the same work the same way. I think that maybe given the series and the book and all kinds of things I've mentioned to anyone who listens to me ramble long enough, one might assume that, like, I'm an anything-goes kind of guy. I'm really not. There are movies that I opt not to watch. There are books that I elect not to read. There's music I decline. And maybe some of it would surprise you because some of it you can't imagine being the kind of thing that might provoke a person to sin at all or to corrupt one's mind, but it appeals to my unique brokenness. And maybe something that spoke to me profoundly would not uplift you in any way, and that's fine. We're all different. What we are seeking is not thoughtless indulgence of any and all art and entertainment with no discretion whatsoever, just as we are not seeking a kind of panicked hiding away from all art and entertainment that might possibly offend a fragile Christian sensibility. What we are seeking instead is a kind of wise, open-minded discernment submitted to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accountability of community that works to know our own weaknesses and limits and to steward a willingness to meet God in all kinds of art. Because art matters to God and should thus matter to us. We cannot simply say, well, I mean, what does it really matter at the end of the day? It's just art and entertainment. In his book, Echoes of Eden, scholar Jerome Barr argues, in this view, the arts are considered optional, rather extravagant, an unnecessary extra in life. But this belief is nonsense, and according to Paul, a heresy of the most serious kind. For in the end, it is a denial of the goodness of creation and the goodness of its creator. And not only that, but there are disciples of Jesus in this room right now amongst you, some of them you know very well, who have been called on by God to create art or 
for whom art is one of the ways God most speaks and comes near to them and convicts them of sin. Years ago, when a friend of mine and I first sat down to write out the pitch for what would become a spiritual discipline, practice-based approach to our church communities, we started writing things on a whiteboard. One of them was a column where we'd write out spaces to experience God's presence, the basics, you know, the, the, the major spots. And he instantly wrote nature on the board. And I was like, okay, I guess. Um, I'm not a shut-in or anything. Been all over the world. I've seen exotic, wondrous scenery. I've never really been spiritually affected by scenery and nature personally. Um, I just usually think, that's neat. And then I keep walking or whatever. But I understand that that is a way that God can and does speak to me and other people. So I have, I've had to learn. We did two whole teachings on it this summer on accident. <laughs> um, but then I went right underneath him on the whiteboard and I wrote art. And he was the one who couldn't relate. He was like, eh, I guess, sure. And listen, I know that this sounds like my own personal sob story. But based on decades of my own life and what feels like innumerable conversations with all kinds of Christian artists, I've got to tell you, being an artist is very hard. As with all sincere vocations, it's not any harder or more special. Than it. As with all sincere vocations, but nothing makes it harder, quite like being invalidated and even condemned by your own community of faith. Probably every artist in this room, young or old, has been made to feel as if their calling wasn't a calling at all, and that it must be done beholden to someone else's subjective sensitivities rather than God's, and that to question either thing was pretense and entitlement. And we need to hear this, all of us. Art is as valid, as worthwhile, and as God-ordained a vocation and calling as being a pastor or a missionary or a teacher or an engineer or a doctor. Art is not expendable. It's not a supplemental luxury for creative types. If we undermine the arts, we undermine the ordination of God over the artist. And if we speak definitively for what art is and is not acceptable for all Christians based on our own subjective sensibility or even the majority opinion of the people around us, we might dispute the means by which God intends to work some vital spiritual formation in the life of another Christian. And if we argue against the spiritual value of art that might violate certain modern cultural Christian expectations, then we inevitably wind up arguing against God's art throughout the scriptures in the process. So, to end, what do we do? I have two very basic suggestions for two different kinds of people in the room. First, for those of you who were mostly with me already on day one, going forward after tonight, how honest are you willing to be before God about your own bents and brokenness and the way certain art might uplift you as a Christian or stumble you along the road of your discipleship? I have a very close friend with similar tastes to mine. Um, we like a lot of the same music and movies and books, and we share these, you know, like things. We, uh, not, not across the board, but a ton of shared similar interests. He read an early draft of the art book and a final one. We had long discussions. He gave feedback, and we were in agreement on the thesis, so like of the same mind. Later, um, after that period, uh, just last year, after a very terrible dark season of depression and suicidal ideation, my friend had sought therapy, his church leaders, community, medication. He was doing all the work. And then he experienced one, one morning in a moment at church, um, his church, miraculous deliverance from God's spirit, and he was healed. 
like that. It doesn't mean that he stopped the hard work, still going to therapy, still seeking community, all that stuff, but he was healed. So he decided then, prompted by the Spirit of God, to spend an indefinite season not listening to or reading or watching anything that wasn't explicitly about his relationship with Jesus and his spiritual formation. And I only found out because he and I are in this text thread where we listen to entire discographies of random musicians that we nominate, usually bad ones on accident. And I was like, hey, why aren't you listening to all these terrible Kiss albums with the rest of us? And then he told me the story. This is what I'm going through. This is what God's doing in my life. Now, this period of his healing and formation wasn't permanent. Eventually, with prayerful consideration around his community and leadership, spiritual direction, he picked up a novel again. He went to the movies with us again. But the point is, he was willing to bring something precious to him, art and the kind of art he likes. He's a film lover, voracious reader of novels, music lover. He was willing to bring it before God and ask. And then even when he got news he didn't like, obey. Do not assume that you're good just because you feel fine. Ask God's spirit and ask again. And it's not just about bringing like movies up to God and saying, is this one all right? Is this one all right? It's about... And honestly, experiencing and debriefing and processing all of it with God. I do this, honestly, with everything from rom-coms to historical dramas to horror movies. Like, all of my life, I'm working to share and process where I'm at, what's affecting me, what I'm meditating on and thinking about with God. And if you do that, it's a lot harder to hide from his input. You know, and he's told me before, hey, listen, not this. This is not good for you. And I'm like, oh, man, you know. And sometimes... I think when he tells me that, I think right away, you know, that's absolutely right. Yes, Lord. And other times I don't like it much. And we fight back and we argue and, he, you know, he wins the arguments. He does that. But the point is you are not your own. You are beholden to a master and a family that loves you. So bring your art and your experience of art before God to share with him and to submit to him. Start with just really basic practices. Talk to God candidly about a given thing that impacted you and why. Go to the movies, pray about it afterward. Read a book, pray about it afterward. Asking God about something that others might find obscene or offensive. Is, and what's off, is there something off in me that this spoke to me? Why? What do you think about what I think, Lord? And what would you have me do about it? He, you might be surprised by what he says one way or the other. But then... To the others among us that are, are less drawn to the arts by natural wiring or disposition or personality. I'll say again, I love you guys. You are, of course, no less valuable, no less Christian than the art lovers in the room. Heck, Tiffany is one of our overseers, and I respect her tremendously. She told me last year she doesn't listen to any music. <laughs> um, we were at a restaurant, almost did a spit take, you know. But she can out-Christian me any day. So it's not like that's some defect in her Christianity. We're all different. So my humble invitation is to take a step. Here are some basic suggestions. Look up a list and pick something. Process it thoughtfully and emotionally with God. We actually um, have a book by uh, Sister Wendy Beckett on our book table beginning tonight that has a painting for each day of Lent with a meditation on it. Very basic guided practices for the coming season could be a beautiful way for you to start and practice something with God. Um, look up suggestions. Obviously, I know it's subjective, but I can, and it feel like a shot in the dark, but it's not hard to find lists of like the greatest of all time, you know, the greatest novels of all time, greatest paintings or movies or albums of all time. I have a friend that was not a reader, and he realized one day that he was an adult who never read a novel, and he was terrified. Oh my gosh, what have I done? So he 
Googled best novels and got Time Magazine's The Greatest Novels of All Time. And then he just started at the beginning and read all the way down the list. So everybody else was talking about these contemporary novels we were reading. He was like, I just read The Grapes of Wrath. That thing thing was wild. And then he felt decently caught up. But listen to this. My personal suggestion would be to try something just, just a bit outside of what you assume is your personal preference and comfort zone. I'm not saying go watch The Exorcist if your soul trembles at the idea of horror movies. I'm just saying maybe something that might challenge your taste a little bit or or even your sensibilities just a little bit. Pick something, process it thoughtfully, emotionally, and with God. It could be a painting, a book, a film, whatever. The point in all this is that art matters to God and we are the people of God. God is the first artist. He made it up. He cares about it. If there is a deficiency in our understanding and appreciation of art, it doesn't mean that we're not really Christians or that we're somehow inferior to other Christians who appreciate art or that we're defective. The point is that if art matters to God, then it should matter to us. And if God can and maybe even wants to come near to us in art as he comes near to us in, say, fasting or in nature or in rest, then we should rush to any and every available means to be with him. That's what this is about. After all, this is about being with him. And we're with him, sure. Uh, He might comfort us, or he might challenge us, or he might provoke us, but he's God. So we want all of it. Whatever it is to be with him, we want all of it. So come, Lord Jesus, however you see fit. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to guide and lead us. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church slash give.